Last week, we read verses 1 through 7, and this week, we're going to be doing 7 to 15. Uh, we laid the groundwork last week, saying that these, uh, these, are, these verses are specifically for the apostles. They declare exactly what the apostles are doing. They're geared towards the apostles. Um, but also the 72 disciples, Jesus says something similar in Luke, uh, Luke 10, 1 through 12. Um, this week, we'll be reading some very specific commands that Jesus gave the apostles, and uh, we'll address three things. Uh, not, I'm not going to be, uh, be as, as, as resolute and say, like, this is thing number one, this is thing number two, this is thing, thing number three, but all three of them will be addressed. It's what, they, what the apostles were to say, what they were to do, and also what their mentality should be as they were going about and doing these things. I swear. I swear I don't touch this, and it slowly turns away from me. It's, I mean, maybe my breath is bad, and the, mic the microphone's like, like, nah, man, I'm out. Um, so let's go ahead and read Matthew 10, verses 7 through, through 15. And proclaim as you go, Jesus says, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Um, we'll get there. <laughs> so in, uh, in the first two, two verses, last week, like I said, we went up to verse 7. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus tells the apostles to declare that because they were to go ahead of him meaning that Jesus was going to be following. So there was that, that geographical closeness that Jesus was nearby, the kingdom of heaven, the king. The king is nearby. He is at hand. Um, and when Jesus tells them to do those things, what are, the, what are the things he said to do? He said, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So it's true that God works uh, for the good of those who love him. That's Romans 8, 28. But he also intends to work for his glory in all things. In Isaiah 42, 8, which is one of my favorite Bible verses, God himself says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Everything God does is for his glory and our benefit. That's the way that I would summarize those two verses. Uh, so uh, Isaiah 42, 8 and Romans 8, 28, God works for the good of those who love him. So what we see in the beginning of these commands 
is not Jesus giving glory to the apostles. He's not giving them something that they can go out and do and be like, yeah, look at how amazing I am. Look at these wonderful gifts God gave me over, over, over diseases and demons and even death. Jesus is not trying to make the disciples happy in themselves. He's actually sending them out ahead of him as heralds. And that's what that word preach, proclaim, means. In the King James, I think it says preach. But if you read uh, Matthew 10, 7, uh, go and proclaim the message, right? What is the message? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when Jesus sends the disciples, the apostles out in this sense, and the, the 72 in Luke 10, he's sending them out actually to prove his own message. He's telling them what to say. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let me show it to you. Let me do the things that Jesus has given authority for me to do. Let me do the things that, that God himself should be able to, to, to do to reverse the curse that has fallen on this world. They were to go out as heralds or town criers. And you think like in, in the middle, middle Ages, right? The town crier gets, gets a message, also happened in early American colonialism, but the town crier gets a message. The town crier is a messenger. They are not an answer in themselves. They're just going out and they're crying out. They're saying, this is the message. The, re the, the, the British are coming. Anyway, um, and when he says, proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's that geographic closeness. Jesus is coming. He's nearby. I'm just a messenger of his. I'm just showing up beforehand. He's coming. But, it, but that message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, also has a chronological nearness. Because if we sit in the time period of Matthew 10, Jesus is alive, not yet dead. He is walking with his disciples. They have not yet scattered. The kingdom is at hand means that the gospel was about to be fulfilled. The true good news. These, these folks were going out and they were proclaiming good news. But the true good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it was at hand. It was coming. It was near. The disciples didn't actually know that second part, though. When they went out and they proclaimed this, they, they just knew Jesus was amazing, and he's given me these, the authority to do these amazing things. The disciples were probably thinking, here's a man who has knowledge beyond the, the scribes and Pharisees. He's working miracles, and it's almost unbelievable how successful he is. They had the honor of following him. They were happy for it. And now they were sent out with more than just the content of Jesus' message. They were also going with miraculous signs and wonders in his authority. What an honor that must have been. But remember, again, speaking of who's getting glory here, remember when the 72 returned? They were amazed, right? This is in Luke 10. They're amazed at this power that they held. Even the demons are subject to us. And then Jesus says, do not rejoice in the power you've been given, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's Luke 10, 20, by the way. The purpose of these miracles over demons, diseases, and death was not that they could marvel at their own newfound authority, was not that they could be like, yeah, look at how amazing I am. 
The purpose of these miracles was to spread the fame of Jesus, to spread the wonder of his teaching in places where, where one man wouldn't be able to get, but 12 could. Remember, Jesus is both God and man. He limited himself to one geographical location at a time. He was somehow omnipresent and not omnipresent at the exact same time. How do we understand that? We don't. You're never going it, to. It's like trying to describe the Trinity without, without dropping a heresy. That's, that, we're not going to get it, but, but a, a true Christological understanding of Jesus is that when he walked the earth, he was only in one place at a time physically. And therefore, he sends out his disciples kind of like arms, trying to, trying to reach towns that he intended to go and some that he may not have intended to go, but to spread, to spread the truth of, of his, his message all over, all over Israel. And also, that statement, uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is actually the same message that Jesus has been proclaiming, and also the same message that John the Baptist was proclaiming. John the Baptist, in Matthew 3, 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was just a herald. He was a town crier. And now so were these apostles, but with the added caveat that they were able to work these incredible miracles. Um, now, I, I think it's essential here, just hitting these verses, and I really agonized over just actually sitting on, on verses 7 and the beginning of 8, because a question is begged when you read the things that they were told to do, what about now? Are these the same commands that are in verse 7 and the beginning of 8 of Matthew 10, are they, are they applicable to us? Is this what we're supposed to be doing? Are these signs and wonders normative to disciples of Christ today? And answering that question actually becomes tricky because the message is still normative. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so is being a herald of Christ. You and I, we're called to go places to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations Although, to be fair, go is in the middle voice, which means as you're going or, or where you are, make disciples of Christ. But the authority and the ability to perform miraculous signs is not normative. You might ask me, how do I know that? Well, for one, service would be a lot more exciting if they were. Just, I'm just saying I promise they would be. If I could do miraculous signs and wonders, I wouldn't keep it to myself. I, I swear. So one commentator, uh, his name is Matthew Henry. He's one of my favorite commentators. If you do not have Matthew Henry's commentary, pick it up. Read it for devotional reading. Uh, but one commentator was, was helpful in helping me think through uh, how to word this. Um, so I want to share some of my conclusions. Are miraculous signs normative for today? Well, looking at our verses, number one, these signs and wonders were laying a foundation for Christ as he went into these towns. We have to remember the time period. We have to remember who was given this message, who was given these commands. We have to, we have to read this chapter in, by being bound to the chronology of it 
Because again, Jesus is God, but he's also man. He's, he's only one dude. He's somehow omnipotent and, and also limiting himself in his knowledge. He doesn't know when he's going to come back. Why? Because he, 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 either he doesn't want to know or because he, doesn't, he is not willing to <laughs> let himself know, but only the Father knows when he's going to be returning. So, so Jesus, being God, somehow physically limits himself. So therefore, he sends these men into the town to lay a foundation. Have you guys ever built a building? No? You've built things. You built something actually the other day. You built a tower out of, out of giant blocks, right? You laid a foundation. Well, you used a foundation because out in, in the, the nursery, it's that flat. It's, well, it's flat enough. It's flat uh, it's a marble floor, and he built a giant tower on it. He utilized the foundation that was already there, and that's essentially what Jesus did. He sent his apostles out to lay a foundation for people to be in awe and wonder of, of him. So that's, that's one thing. They, they, they were sent with these signs and wonders to lay a foundation for Christ in towns that he had not yet reached. And two... The disciples were given limitations. When Jesus says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, he also has said, go nowhere among the Gentiles. That was last week. And enter no towns of the Samaritans. He was limiting them. They were to stay close to home in this time and place. Now, if you were to read Acts, you'd actually find every single one of those miracles done by the apostles again, except the lepers. That is not mentioned. But they were still limited to the apostles. And Paul, who, who was given the role of apostle in Acts 9 when he's converted, when Jesus says, I have, uh, I have set him apart. I have made him holy to go to the Gentiles and the Gentile nations. So therefore, we cannot look at this text and assume that the miraculous authority has been given to us today. If we were to turn to one of the many, the, the many sections, and when I say many, I mean like three, but one of the many sections of the Bible where miraculous gifts are mentioned, we could go to 1 Corinthians 12, 8 and 10, or 8 to 10. Uh, we could compare the list actually starting in verse 6, 6, 5, five or six, somewhere around there. We could compare the list and we could go through them all, but if we just hit 1 Corinthians 12, eight through 10, we'd be dropping near the end of that list. We'd actually kind of miss the point of Paul. Paul's making an argument in 1 Corinthians 10 through 14 about spiritual gifts. But in, in 1 Corinthians 12, he says this, for to one is given through the spirit, the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by, one, by the one spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpret, interpretation of tongues. And so on and so on and so on and so on. He goes on. Keeps going. And even in that statement, gifts of healing is cleverly worded, where Paul is actually meaning gifts, meaning somebody has been healed or maybe a church body has been healed. Perhaps we've had cancer in this room where people are no longer suffering from it. That's a gift of healing. Maybe there's 
two people in this room that I know of who have had cancer and are no longer suffering with it in the way that they were. Those are gifts of healing by the, by the one spirit. Now, that was medical intervention. It was still God providing for it. And then in 1 Corinthians 12.10, when he says to another, the working of miracles, there are people who claim to be miracle workers. But it's funny that they miss in verse 8 the utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge. Would you say that there's somebody in this room who always nutters, or utters wisdom? They never say something foolish. Or they always utter knowledge. They never say something stupid. No. No, the point that Paul is making actually in those verses is, is not that this person is a worker of miracles. It's that God has apportioned at maybe one point or many points by the Spirit that there would be a working of miracles at one point, but it doesn't mean it's normative. It doesn't mean it's every, it's every time. I would love to fix a computer every time, every time I touch it. I have one computer that I had for a long time that I, I really adored and I kept it in storage while we were in Chicago and then I come back and you know what? What happened to it was it aged in a, uh, a non-climate controlled storage, storage area and the processor was fried. The motherboard was fried and not because I turned it on when it had dust, I cleaned it off, uh, but it was just kaput. I would love to be an always worker of miracles over computers. I'd love to have that computer functioning again, but I don't. The working of miracles just means that somebody was a conduit by which God decided to work miraculously through. Or maybe they had received a miraculous intervention. But before we derail much worse from Matthew 10, I, I simply, I, I simply want to say that when Paul refers to the gifts of the Spirit, it's not a level of authority. That's not, what, that's not even the case that he makes. Pick up 1 Corinthians, read 10 to 14, actually 10 to the end of the book, but 10 to 14 especially, and you'll see that Paul's point is very clearly laid out in 1 Corinthians 11, that spiritual gifts are of no purpose, no point, no help, unless there is love. Love is the one uh, uh, grounding factor in spiritual gifts. It's not about the normativity of spiritual gifts. It's in fact that, they, that the Corinthians were missing the point. So let's not miss the point in Matthew 10. And that point is that Jesus is laying a foundation for his ministry. And he's laying that foundation as a test for others to see the effectiveness of himself, the glory that he gives to no other. And he's spreading out the apostles saying, you're doing this in my authority. Do these things. Have power over demons, disease, and death, and tell them, tell them that I am coming, that I, the king, am coming. They were heralds. Now, instead of you and I seeing these things in our day, we read of them as truly attested and preserved for your benefit. Instead of performing these works as disciples of Christ, we declare instead with absolute certainty, yes, the Lord did this. Yes, the Lord is true. Yes, the Lord will provide mercy, new life, salvation, and resurrection, which are things, by the way, that the apostles didn't understand yet. 
I know these things for tr- for the, uh, I know these things are true. They truly happened because I read them in what God has preserved, His Bible, and therefore I have faith in Him and in His message. Do miracles happen today? Yeah, of course they do. It's not that God has decided to be surrendered to an age of reason and there's no activity of him. He is not deistic. He does not just set the ball rolling and go, gosh, I hope it stays in that tube. But they are not normative like they were with the apostles when they were sent out. Miracles are not normative. They're not. You know what is normative? That one day, all of us who trust in Christ will be free from this body that is cursed. We will be brought into his presence, in whom is perfection. We will glorify him for all time. And we will come to the point where we can stop glorying in ourselves and instead glorify him who is worthy. Like I said, if miracles were normative today, I would be happy to make service more exciting. To not have to sneak glitter into an HVAC system or, 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 or feathers in order to convince you that God was raining gold from heaven. I, 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 would, I would happily, happily take anybody who had a limp or a struggle and pray for them and take it away. There are people who say that's all normative, and I am filled with grief for the souls that suffer under the persecution of, 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 of some charlatan behind a pulpit. I'm going to stop. I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep derailing. I, I, I have no nice words to say to people other than trust the gospel and repent that do that. Moving on in our verses, like I said, I could have spent the whole sermon, and I've already spent like 60% of the sermon talking about verses 7 and the beginning of 8. So let's go through the rest of them, and we can touch on them. So uh, uh, the rest of verse 8, so uh, heal heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, (coughs) give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belt, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff. I'm going to stop there. When we continue reading the rest there, and we read up to almost almost the end of that verse, we read that Jesus intended his disciples to go with urgency. Don't gather your stuff together. Don't get all your ducks in a row. Go. Don't take extra stuff. They were not to acquire money from those they healed. I almost exploded again. They were not to acquire money from those that they healed, for they they received without paying. They didn't get this authority by, (coughs) by paying for it, so therefore they should give without pay. That's very similar to how Christ performed his miraculous healings. He he modeled this for the disciples, right? Right? He didn't, uh, he didn't heal a person of leprosy, and then they go home to find a bill in their mailbox. He didn't heal somebody who's, who's oppressed from a demon, put a blanket over them so they can be in their right mind and warm, and then say, uh, and then say oh, by the way, you owe me. That's not what Jesus did. He instead just healed them. 
He healed them and didn't ask anything from them. So therefore, he advised the, the disciples, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, uh, which would be kind of like a mobile bank account. You know, we can think of it like a debit card. Um, but, but he said, acquire no gold <coughs> or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. They were to travel quickly. They were to travel lightly. They weren't supposed to get all their affairs in, the, in order before, and take extra supplies. They were just supposed to go. It was urgent. And like, honestly, I read those verses and I will confess to you that that's hard for me to think about like, oh, the urgency, I need to go. Because I'm the guy that when I'm packing, uh, I count the number of days I'll be gone and somewhere between like every three to five extra days uh, requires an extra pair of socks and an extra pair of underwear and an extra pair of pants because you never know, I might go swimming. Maybe I'll fall in a hole. Maybe I'll, do, maybe I'll get pushed by my children uh, into something that's muddy and wet or a dog jump on me. Like I'm always thinking, I'm always thinking like I need some extra stuff. I need to carry more because I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe I won't be able to do laundry where I'm going. So I plan accordingly. So I hear Jesus saying, don't take extra stuff. And, and I'm like, ah, I, don't, I don't know if I'd do that. I think, I think I'd be the, if I were one of the apostles, I'd be like, but Jesus, can't I take this like one extra staff? Like, what if I break mine? I lean pretty heavy on mine. I kind of like a spare. But I will admit there are times where the Lord calls us to grab what we have and go. I experienced that kind of coming here. Like there was this long pipeline like, hey, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll, <coughs> we'll have you do replanting in Toledo. And okay, great. Okay, we'll show up to this meeting and, and just come and sit there. Okay, great. So I sit in a meeting. A couple months go by. I keep bugging people like, hey, so how's Toledo? And then one day I get a phone call. Hey, go there. Start preaching. You're going to be there in a week. Is that all right? Actually, it was three weeks. <laughs> you're you're, you're going to go. You're going to go. So uh, you ready? Sure. There are times that the Lord grabs us and tells us to go. Take what we have. And these apostles were being sent with the command to take only what they could carry, essentially. But they were not going to be left destitute on their journey, were they? Was God going to say, go and suffer? No. Actually, Jesus tells them, the for the laborer deserves his food. And that's the rest of that verse. So that means that they weren't supposed to carry extra. They weren't supposed to plan to just, you know, starve to death because the Lord was going to provide for them. Why? The laborer deserves his food, his wages. Well, how was he going to do that? How was the Lord going to provide for them? That's, that's verses 11 through 14. Uh, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. Jesus is tell <coughs> telling the apostles essentially this. Take what you have, find someone, find someone who's worthy in the town, and stay with them until you leave. Which could be paraphrased like this. Find someone who is accepting of the message that I'm sending you with um, and stay there until you can't anymore, until you have to move on. Greet those who are in the home. And if they're actually accepting it, stay and further build them up with your proclamation. 
Now, there's several implications for this for pastors. Actually, all the commentaries you read, they grab these verses and they're like, pastors. <laughs> and then like the poor common person, church attender, stands there going, okay, what about like non-ministers? Is there anything that has to say for non-ministers? Well, yes, actually, there, there, there are some things. So let's provide you a scenario that, that kind of mirrors this in our day and age, right? Let's say where you're working, where you go to dinner, where you, where, where you show up uh, once a week when you go for senior hour at Walmart, Carl. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's say you befriend somebody and you start giving them the gospel. Maybe you pray for them. Maybe you tell them you're praying for them and, and you befriend them. And maybe, maybe that turns into them, you and them hanging out outside of, of this one locale. Maybe you have coffee. Maybe you talk. Maybe you go for what I call ballistics therapy, a.k.a. shooting. Uh, but, but something you do, like you're, you're doing something together, you're, you're praying for them, and they start accepting the gospel. So you pray for them, you continue praying for them, and as you spend this time with them, displaying, or displaying and proclaiming the gospel to them, they accept it. What a wonder. What an incredible moment. Your hope has become reality. They become your fellow brother, brother or sister in Christ. Praise God. That would be a worthy home. That would be a place where you'd want your peace to rest, right? But what if they don't accept the gospel? What if instead the friendship not only remains worldly in your family or yourself, you're expending all this energy on them? And they actually become a drain. They're never repentant. And maybe they're even trying to drag you into sin with them. You work and you work and you're being drained of all, all, all that hope that you had of them coming to Christ. What do you do then? Jesus says, if, if the house is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Now, for the apostles, this would have been more of a household that says something like, yeah, we see what you're doing. We like what you're saying. It's pretty incredible. But let me show you where you're wrong. Maybe they were invited into the house not because the person was receptive but because the person just liked to talk. Or maybe, maybe because they were so sure of their rightness. That's what it would have looked like for the apostles. Or maybe, maybe they saw the signs and wonders and they tried to capitalize on it. Maybe they thought they could make a buck off, uh, off these things the apostles were doing. But for us, however, the implication would be if, if someone was really draining you of your emotional energy your care, your compassion, maybe even they're draining you of your finances. They have no interest in the good news of the gospel. And frankly, if that's happening, it might be high time to shake off the dust from your feet and move on. We've all had projects in our lives 
that, that have been money pits, right? You think, oh, I'm going to build a driveway. You find out that actually where you want to build a driveway, there's a sinkhole. And so right after you lay the foundation for the driveway, it all collapses. Well, maybe now you can fill in the hole and you start building a driveway on top of that. And then what? lo and behold, what happens? But a landslide, because you know what? Sinkholes don't create very strong foundations underneath. And so then your driveway goes down the hill and you say bye-bye. And then you decide to try it again and it doesn't work. By the way, that, that, that happened to a friend of mine. Uh, <laughs> so so um, we've all had projects that are draining. And we've all had people that we want to reach with the gospel, and somehow they become a drain as well. Those are the people that we need to shake off the dust from our feet and, and, and surrender. And maybe, maybe the Lord had you sow a seed that's going to grow another time. But you shouldn't just be dragged and chained into their problems constantly. A laborer deserves his food. And if you're laboring and you're actually getting your food taken from you for trying to reach somebody in evangelism, then move on. That's not callous. And I know there's some situations in this room that you might be thinking, maybe I'm talking about that, and I'm not talking about that. But if there's someone who's draining you of your evangelistic zeal, move to another prospect. Pray for that person. Don't get sucked into their drama. That's how we can apply that command of Christ today. Now, verse 15, I only have a couple seconds. This is going to be fun. Uh, verse 15 actually drops a terrifying doctrine if, uh, if, if we're paying attention to, to how Jesus says this. Uh, Jesus is saying, truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah for than the town that you shake off the dust from your feet. It will be more bearable. <clears throat> now, I know you've all heard at some point, oh, God sees all sins as equal. But Jesus seems to imply that those who reject the apostles and their message are worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're not familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah, pick up Genesis 19, read it in your own time. But essentially, God takes two towns that are one town that is so wicked that he turns them to a pillar of salt. It was seen actually as one of the worst judgments in all of the Old Testament. And here Jesus says on the day of judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to have it actually a little bit better than these people that reject your message, that reject my message that I'm sending you with. It's true that God sees all sins as equally condemnable, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, but he does not see them as equal in their level of punishment. You see this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where one sin gets you banished. Another, you just got to do a sacrifice and you can atone for. And then others, you're, you're killed. Those who reject this gospel from the apostles and also those who reject the gospel as you give it to them are going to be punished more severely than Sodom and Gomorrah were. But they're going to be punished on the day of judgment in hell. 
they heap greater condemnation on themselves by rejecting the message. That is, by the way, not your fault as the one proclaiming the message, but their fault. Uh, if, you, if you get a chance later, read Ezekiel 3. Uh, verses 18 to 21 shows it, <coughs> shows it to be true that if a person is warned, uh, then it's not on the proclaimer's hands. The, the guilt is not on the person who warned them. It's on there. It's on them. But, the Lord says, uh, oh, I got myself mixed up. I apologize. If, if somebody has a message and they don't warn the person, then the blood is on the hands of the person that has the message. But if the person who has the message warns a person and they reject it, then the, 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 the proclaimer is free from the guilt. So if there's somebody that you're thinking, maybe I shouldn't proclaim the gospel to them because it, it gets them more judgment if they reject it, hate to tell you, that's wrong. And the guilt is on your hands. Their blood, the blood of their condemnation is on your hands. You, if you are a Christian, have a responsibility to share the gospel with those around you. The good news of salvation through Christ from sin, if you're not doing it, then you are bearing the blood of, of the people that you don't tell on yourself. That guilt is forgiven in Christ, but it should still weigh you down as long as you draw breath. If they reject the gospel, if they reject the good news of the foundation for salvation that's been laid by Christ, then they suffer greater judgment than just being turned to a pillar of salt, which I can't imagine... I mean, that, that happened in an instant, but I can't imagine the feeling of having your body drained of all of its moisture and just being uh, disintegrated. I can't. I can't imagine that. But, but the guilt of somebody or the, the punishment that somebody that, who's, who rejects the gospel suffers, it's terrible. Hell is not a place that's absent of God. Hell is a place that's absent of God's mercy. If you proclaim the gospel to somebody and they reject it, then they're a sinner damned, condemned to God's fiery wrath for all eternity. And I want us to close on that somber note. I want us to feel the dread for somebody we know and care about who rejects the gospel, who has no fruit of the gospel in their lives, who, who is ultimately heading towards condemnation. I want us to carry that weight of guilt for those that we're afraid to tell the gospel to. Because we're not called to not say it. We're called to say it. We're called to proclaim it regardless. We are on an urgent, message, or urgent mission, just like the apostles were on an urgent mission. We don't know the day that the Lord is going to return. It could be any second. 
And so maybe there's somebody that you know that they, they need the gospel, and you've been thinking, well, I'm just really afraid to start talking to them about it. Or maybe, well, they keep resisting it. You are not called to hide it. You are called to go quickly and hastily to them. Whether you display the gospel, you proclaim the gospel, or you live the gospel toward them, that's your calling as a Christian. Don't be weighed down for their rejection. Be weighed down for your rejection of telling them what they need to hear. I want us to remember essentially three things from this, from, from this section of Scripture. I want you to remember that the, that the salvation of sinners is not your responsibility, but the proclamation is your responsibility. I want you to remember that God gets justice due for sins. And I want you to remember that your mission is not the same as the apostles. It's not to do miracles. It's to go, go and proclaim. Rest on the mighty, sovereign, and gracious promise in the gospel that Jesus' blood has overcome your sin as long as you put your trust in him, friend. That's a message worth proclaiming. Go urgently. Let's stand and worship him. But let me, let me close in prayer as we stand. Lord, we are not the apostles. And yet, we are in a position that's Actually, even better in some ways, because in Matthew 10, they didn't even know what you were going to do. They didn't even know the, the effect of your salvation, the extent of your salvation, as we do now. Countless billions and billions, maybe even trillions of people, we get to call brothers and sisters across all of history. But Lord, for those that are still alive, build in us a deep desire to tell them of you. May the blood not be on our own hands. In Jesus' name, amen. May our awe and wonder of the person of Jesus Christ spurn us with a sense of urgency to try and rescue sinners from hell through the gospel. It's not up to you. It's up to him but we still get to proclaim. Go in peace, saints. And if you're going to be attending the uh, meeting with Rachel afterward, uh, wait until she gets in there, because again, it's going to be a, uh, uh, she, she's going to teach a lesson and model it. And I really hope she records it because I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm getting glared at. Am I getting glared at? I'm getting glared at. All right. <laughs> Go in peace, saints.